Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28, our text of this morning. Be reading from the first verse to verse 10 and then picking up the narrative at verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Lo, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Hail. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Why is it that millions of mood posters with little philosophic sayings written in the corner are sold in America each year. Why did I feel happy this week when I looked at purple snapdragons and distant mountains on an Easter card? Why did Ayn Rand, who died last year apparently as a convinced atheist, say that admiration is one of the greatest and rarest of pleasures, and she meant the pleasure of admiring greatness, not the pleasure of being admired. Why is there such a thing as stardom in theater, music, and sports? Why are scenic cruises and scenic tours and $45 coffee table scenic books a million-dollar business in this country? I think the answer is because the essence of humanness is the hunger for great beauty. Or to put it in a more God-centered way, God has made you with a hunger to worship him. With an appetite for his greatness. And the great tragedy of the human race is that we were made to find infinite joy in admiring Christ. But instead, we have become so blind and so foolish that we spend energy and money and time 
seeking out things in the world to satisfy this unsatiable craving for greatness and beauty and our desire to admire it. The irony of the human condition, and nobody in this room is any exception, the irony of the human condition is that God has put us within sight of the Himalayas of his glory. And we have pulled down the shades of our chalet and are content to show slides of Buck Hill. But every one of you knows it hasn't worked. The posters and the postcards and the rock stars and the scenic tours and the glossy books have not satisfied. The longings of your heart, they give some pleasure. Oh, yes, they give some pleasure. I took 35 pictures in that room on Thursday night when that baby was born. They will bring me some pleasure. But they can never compare to the real thing. The times when you walk over to the window and let up the blinds and throw back the shutters and look out on the Himalayan glory of the risen Christ. If your life is flat and empty and without exhilaration or significance or any unifying orientation that you can live for and get excited about, you know what the reason is? You do not see the risen Christ for what he is. Some of you may scarcely see him at all. In a crowd like this on Easter Sunday, I'm sure that's the case. Some of you scarcely have seen him at all. Others of you have such tiny little sentimental small pictures hanging on the wall of your mind that you are starved for the real thing. If we could just keep Christ in view, the risen Christ for what he is, if we could keep him in view, the bottomless appetite of our heart for worship and for admiration would be satisfied and all our days would be worship and joyful obedience. The last chapter of Matthew is a window out of that chalet onto the sunrise glory of the risen Christ and through it. You can see three massive peaks rising up out of the range of mountains, which are the character of Christ. One is the peak of his power. The other is the peak of his kindness. And the other is the peak of his purposefulness. And I think that you would agree with me that if we are really going to admire in a way that satisfies our deepest longing to admire. That's the kind of person we have to have. We just can't be satisfied with a person who is weak and can't realize his purposes. Nor can we be satisfied in admiring a person who has no purposes. Nor can we be satisfied even less so with a person whose purposes are selfish and unkind. But if there be a person whose power is infinite and whose kindness is unmeasured and whose purpose is unwavering, you would all admire that person. In fact, you're hungering to admire that person if you could just find that person. Novelists and poets and movie makers and TV writers sometimes give us a little shadow of that person and we make a hero out of him. And we love to watch him 
And we go back again to the movies and turn on that TV each week and love that hero. But it never satisfies the longing to worship is the longing to have something infinite in power and kindness and purposefulness in our vision. And the substitutes will never work any more than National Geographic this month can satisfy my longing for the Chattooga River. We must see the original power, kindness and purposefulness. We must see and worship the risen Christ. No substitutes except. So let me take you to the window this morning that Matthew provides for us in his 28th chapter. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are two resurrection appearances of our Lord. Only two. There were others, but Matthew is only interested in two. And the same thing happens both times, which signal what Matthew is about in this chapter. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them, the women, and said, Hail! They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then the second appearance, down in verse 17. He meets the disciples, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't it clear from those two statements what Matthew's purpose is? Isn't he telling us the only proper response to the risen Christ is worship him, fall on your face, take him around the ankles and worship him. And what Matthew has done, therefore, in this last chapter is just open the window for us onto the Himalayan glory of this Christ so that we could catch glimpses coming up out of the clouds of a peak here and a peak there and our breath be taken away and worship the risen Christ. And I want to just direct your attention to three of those peaks that I saw coming up out of the mist this week as I pondered this chapter. But before I look at the first one. Don't miss how astonishing it is that Jesus accepts their worship. Do you remember back in the temptation scene three years ago? Satan comes to Jesus and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll bow down and worship me. You know what Jesus said? It is written. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Be gone, Satan. And when he is risen from the dead, men and women fall and worship him, and he does not rebuke them. Do you see what that means? The resurrection is the certification that Jesus is the Son of God, not in the sense that Israel was the Son of God. Or I am the son of God, but in the sense that he was God. And therefore a legitimate object of our worship. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And when he is risen, he receives the worship of his people. Easter is a great day for reaffirming our conviction that Jesus Christ is no mere man, no mere angel, no mere creature. The Jehovah's Witnesses notwithstanding, he is God, blessed over all for whom and through whom all things were made. 
from everlasting to everlasting. And therefore, when Matthew calls us to worship, and that is what he's doing here in chapter 28, when he calls us to worship, don't shrink back and say, oh, no, I only worship God. For Christ is God. And he has demonstrated it through the resurrection of the dead. And isn't that what verse 19 was written for? Make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, mystery though it be. And when we worship the one, we worship them all. So Matthew means for this chapter to be a window of worship, a window out on the Himalayan glory of the risen Christ. And I want us to look at three peaks coming up out of the clouds. One, the peak of his power. Look at verse 18, first of all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. I wish that there were a way with words that I could make you see and feel that Jesus Christ has more authority than President Reagan. More authority than all the powers of Moscow and Peking. I wish that I could say something or paint some picture that would cause you to realize that if all the the authority of all the governments and all the armies in the world were put in a balance and on the other side were put the authority of the risen Christ, they would go up like air. All authority on earth and in heaven has been given to him, all of it. The risen Christ has the authority and the right to tell every man and woman in this room what to do, what to say, and what to feel, and what to think every second of your life. No objections. Absolute authority. For he is God. And we dare not quibble with him. Here's our Easter witness to the world. The risen Christ is your king, world. And he has unlimited authority over your life. If you do not bow. If you do not delight in admiring him. If you do not trust or obey, you will be executed for treason in the last day. Easter is God's open declaration that he lays claim on every person. Easter has to do with power. Easter has to do with the claim of the risen Christ on everything that breathes. He has rights and authority over your sex life. Absolute authority over your sex life. Over your job, your career. He has authority to rule at home and at work and at leisure. He has authority over your vacation and over your children and over your body. He owns you. 
So if you resist him, if you deny his claim and feel no admiration for him, if you turn away to other allegiances and try to find the satisfaction for your desire for admiration in the world, you will be executed for treason in the last day. And it will appear so reasonable and right that you should be executed for your disloyalty to your maker and your redeemer, that there will be no objections and no appeals at all. Not even from your closest relatives. Your life of indifference to the risen Christ and of your half Hearted attention to a few of his commands, perhaps on Easter Sunday morning, will appear to you on that day supremely blameworthy and foolish. And you will remember this sermon and weep and gnash your teeth forever. The risen Christ has all authority, not only on earth, but in heaven. I think Matthew wants us to see this in verses two through four. Behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow and for fear of him. The guards trembled and became like dead men. What is the meaning of that? Why that display of glory and power of the angels? It means at least this. Angels stand in the service of the risen Christ. Angels do his bidding and fulfill his purposes. I don't know what you think about when you put an angel in your imagination. Depends on what paintings you've looked at, I suppose. Perhaps um, it's a woman, perhaps. Long hair, blue eyes, wings with feathers. Or maybe if you've seen enough medieval paintings, a little fat baby like Barnabas. And little wings like this, little cherubim. Terrible misconception of what the cherubim are. If that's your conception of what an angel is, I probably won't be able to impress you this morning by saying he has all authority in heaven over every angel. And they do his bidding to the T every moment of every day. But if you can imagine how powerful an angel is, if you can imagine how many Angels there are when the Bible says innumerable, myriads upon myriads. If you can imagine what it will be like when he mounts his white stallion and rides at the head of that army against the mutiny of this world in the last day, then you will be impressed when I tell you he has all authority in heaven. Oh, how we need to pray for the gift of imagination. So that we can feel what it means that the risen Christ is commander in chief of innumerable forces. Innumerable forces of beings 
infinitely more powerful than we are powerful. Innumerable forces who cannot be destroyed because they are immortal. And when they come for salvation and for destruction in the last day, no laser beams. No contemporary nuclear space age technology will have any effect on them at all. And they will accomplish the purposes of the risen Christ. Consider a few biblical images of the angels and Christ. Let me just read a collage of texts here. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not know that I can appeal to my father and he will send me more than 72,000 angels? The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father with angels, authorities, powers subject to him. And, we, and the list could go on and on. Oh, how I want your vision of the angelic hosts and Christ at the head to be large this morning. When the angel in Matthew 28 descends with the power of an earthquake, the appearance of lightning and white snow garments, the meaning is this. All authority in heaven has been given to Christ and the angels, thousands upon thousands, indestructible, obey his word. Oh, that Ayn Rand could have opened her eyes to see the glory of the risen Christ. Then she would not have said admiration is one of the greatest and rarest of pleasures. And John Galt would have looked like Tweety Bird compared to Jesus Christ. The second peak in the mountain range is the mountain peak of his kindness. I see it first in verses 5 to 10. Christ's resurrection kindness. The angel first tells the women... Not to fear, verse 5. Then in verse 7, the angel commands them to go and tell his disciples that he is risen and will meet them in Galilee. Verse 8 says that they ran to do just that with fear and great joy. And then the wonderful thing happens. Jesus intercepts them on the way. And he says to them, verse 10, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and they will see me. Why did he intercept them? They were obeying. They were on their way. And he seems to have just repeated the command that the angel gave. Why the repetition? Why did Jesus bump in there? Why not wait until they're all gathered in Galilee? You know what I think the answer is? 
sheer kindness. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing kindness to these women. An unnecessary bonus from the big heart of the risen Christ. Those kinds of things happen when you're obeying the word of God. Some of you probably have said in your life and may be saying now, where is the kindness of the risen Christ? You know what Mary Magdalene would answer? It's about seven steps down the road of obedience. Not far. One of the things I love about this passage here is that Jesus extends his kindness not only to the women who had performed much better than the disciples during the crucifixion, but also to the men. In verse 5, the angel said, don't be afraid. But in verse 8, it says they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. When Jesus meets them, he says, hail, which literally is translated rejoice. And then he says the same thing the angel did. Don't be afraid. See the repetition there. Don't be afraid. They feared. Don't be afraid. You know what I think they were afraid of? Put yourself in their position. If Christ has been risen, if all authority on earth has been given to him, if he is now ready, as he no doubt was in their minds, to establish the messianic kingdom worldwide, what is going to become of these turncoat disciples who deserted him in his hour of greatest trial? Might there not be judgment in Galilee? And Jesus is not only powerful, but kind and takes away that fear with one word. Did you notice the change? In verse seven, the angel said, go tell his disciples. And Jesus said, go tell my brothers. What a relief. Brothers, brothers. Has anybody in this room ever deserted Christ in the hour of testing? Has anybody not? Isn't the word here good for you, me? If you will go to Galilee, he will meet you and call you brother, sister. If you in your heart will go to the Galilee of repentance, he will meet you on the way and say, rejoice. Don't be afraid, brother, sister. And as if that weren't enough evidence of his kindness, look at the way Matthew ends his book, lest we miss the point. Aren't you glad when a book of the Bible ends with a sentence like this? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. The risen Christ is powerful infinitely. And the risen Christ is kind immeasurably. And thirdly, the risen Christ is purposeful, unwaveringly. 
In order to admire and worship the risen Christ, it's not enough that he have power and it's not enough that he have mercy or kindness. We can't admire people who are powerful and kind and go in circles and don't know what life is about and have no single purpose that they're trying to achieve. Isn't one of the reasons there are so few people to admire in the world today is that there are so few people who have singleness of purpose. We all seem to do a little bit of this and then we do a little bit of that and then we're off on this kick, off on that kick. Who sticks to it? How many people can you look at and say there is a life unwaveringly devoted to one thing? Because when you when you find that you are tempted to worship. And admire. Verse 19 shows that the risen Christ has a purpose. He knows why he reigns. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The purpose of the risen Christ is to empower his church to make his authority known in every culture so that worshipers would be one out of every tongue and tribe and nation. He wouldn't have said at the end, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. If our mission hadn't been his business, his purpose. Whenever we win people to the Lord, they bow the knee to his sovereign authority. It is he who has been at work. The Lord is with us. He aims to fill his kingdom with worshipers from Argentina. And Liberia. And Uganda. And Ecuador. And Cameroon. And Mexico. And the Philippines. And Japan. And Egypt. And Brazil. And the Kaufman Union. The risen Christ is not going in circles, wondering what it's all about. He isn't thumbing through the manual of operation. He wrote the book. And he has an unwavering purpose in this world. And so I simply close by asking you, don't you hunger to admire that kind of person? Isn't there something deep in you that longs to admire an infinitely powerful, immeasurably kind and unwaveringly purposeful person? Can you really be satisfied with anything less than the risen Christ? For some of you, the taste might have just been begotten this morning. And you find yourself saying, hmm, that's good. That's good. I'd like to taste more of that. I'd like to see more. And my recommendation, therefore, to you is first confess the deadness and the blindness of your past. I have to do it again and again. How blind and dull I am. Awaken me, Lord. And then put your feet On the road with Mary. In the path of obedience and faith and expect him to meet you not many steps down the road. And it may be that before we're finished singing crown him with many crowns, some of you will have worshipped and seen for the very first time. And when that hymn is over and I step here and say the Lord is risen, you will respond and the Lord will hear whether he is worshipped or not.